Welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature the longtime radio voice of the Chicago Blackhawks, John Whiteman. Probably a week and a half later, I got a call from Jim DeMaria, who said that you know, we have reviewed your information. What would it take to bring in Chicago? I was a loss. I just didn't know what to say. I, I, I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the team I love, and they want me to be their radio guy? This is like a dream. I can't believe this. And sure enough, it, would, it all became true. And then it started in 2006. And then my son, Sean, was born in December of 2006. And we've been there ever since. He arrived here when the Blackhawks were just beginning a slow rise to success. Then John Whiteman had the fortune of being behind the mic for three Stanley Cup championships. But while the Blackhawks are in a rebuild and lost treasured announcers Pat Foley and Eddie Olchek, Whiteman remains a sturdy voice through difficult times. So is his longtime radio partner, Troy Murray, who's been battling cancer. Weinemann has been honing his craft for 30 years, including stops in several NHL ports of call, and he's received several awards for his work. A native of Kansas City, Weinemann actually began his career here, albeit as a bartender in a comedy club? So, John Weinemann, tell me a story I don't know. <laughs> it was Zany's Comedy Club in Mount Prospect. Zany's Comedy Club was founded by Rick Hewitt in 1978. They have been providing stand-up comedy and big laughs for 40 years. I was uh, I was working a couple of jobs at the time, and uh, I, had, I had quit my regular job. It was in sales, and I quit that job because I just I, I needed to free up time so that I could do what I really wanted to do, which was become active reporting on sports in the Chicagoland area, particularly the Chicago Blackhawks. And so I worked it out with, uh, you know, my other employers. I had three jobs at one time, okay? I mean, people think, wow, that's a lot. But when you think about it, in a 24-hour time continuum, there's a lot of time in there to work. And I, I just, you know, since I didn't have a social life, I just filled up my extra time with, with work. And I actually found a way to save a fair amount of money because I was working a lot, you know. I wasn't sleeping a lot, but that didn't matter. So I met uh, the comedy club in Mount Prospect called Zanies. Uh, great people there. Uh, a guy who became one of my best friends was my boss. His name was T.X. Jones. And uh, God rest his soul, he unfortunately passed of prostate cancer right before COVID. Um, and uh, TX was good enough to hire me as his third bartender because he needed a third guy to you know, pinch hit for the other two when they needed to go and do whatever they needed to do. Well, in time, one of the other bartenders quit and I got his shift. And so now I'm considered not necessarily full-time, but you know, almost full-time. Anyway, I'm working probably three days a week there, along with, you know, working at the other jobs as well. 
And uh, we had a day where our big boss came in and said, hey, look, guys, um, a bunch of employees have been fired at Motorola out in Schaumburg. And Jay Leno has agreed to come to the club. In fact, he insisted on coming to the club and putting on a show, an exclusive show for those people who were fired. And it was right before the Christmas holidays. So these people were all let go. Well, the good folks at Zanies, I don't know how they did it, but they reached out to all of those families and they invited them down for a special night for them exclusively at Zanies. And the, uh, the guy that ran the comedy club, he came to us and he said, look, you guys are going to volunteer a night. Okay. This is the only time we're ever going to ask this, but this is for all of these people who have lost their jobs. And, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to take care of you. I thought, no, oh, whatever, you know, I, that's, I'd be happy to give up a night for somebody less fortunate, not a big deal. So we all came to work and it was a, I think it was a, a Monday night, which is normally the night when Zanies was closed. People started arriving, you know, and I mean, George, it was an onslaught, all of these people. And the, the one thing that kept going through my mind was these poor people. I mean, here they are, their livelihoods have been taken away from them right before the Christmas holiday of all mm. times, you know? And uh, so we, we were welcoming to them and helping them to their seats. I mean, even as bartenders, we got out from behind the bar and we would shake people's hands and, you know, put our arms around them and say, come on, come on, come on in here. Let's have some fun tonight. Like that, take their minds off their troubles. So they all got sat and, you know, we got back in our positions to work and here comes Jay Leno through the front door. And Jay didn't have an entourage. He came in kind of by himself and he comes in and he shakes hands with Bert, the manager and TX, my boss. And Bert says, okay, he says, he says, Jay, you're going to be on in 15 minutes. He says, he says, I can go up there right now. Jay was such a great guy. And so Bert says, yeah, go ahead. So all the people are in the room sitting and we're behind this wall and the room where Jay was performing was in the area, the room behind us. So we couldn't really see him, but we could hear it. And as soon as Jay walked through that door to go up on stage, you heard these people, the thunderous applause for him. And he got up on stage and he just started performing. And he went for, I'm not kidding, he went for probably an hour and a half. And the laughter was, it was so loud. It was like, this is the loudest we have ever heard this club. And uh, the people that were in there, they, they got their drinks, they got food and everything was pretty much complimentary. I mean, Zanini's been over backwards for them. So Jay does that show. And he, he actually was going to do two shows that night for the same group of people. And so, you know, the, people, the folks sat around. Jay went for about an hour and a half. He comes back into the bar after it's all over because it's like the break in between shows. Now, I didn't know if Jay was a drinker or not. I don't drink. And um, Jay comes up to the bar. And I remember thinking that he was this guy that loved automobiles. And I thought to myself, the only way I'm going to get a conversation with Jay Leno is if I start talking about cars. And so I, he, Jay comes up to the bar and I shook his hand. I said, Hey, glad to meet you, Jay, John Whiteman. Nice to meet you. That kind of thing. I said, what can I get you? And he says, Oh, just, uh, just a water on the rocks. I said, okay, yeah, fine. Got him a water on the rocks and handed him a glass. I said, Jay, you, you like to work on cars, don't you? He goes, Oh yeah. I said, you know, I've got this problem with my car. I said, I got this. I think it's, I, I don't know if, if it's the fan belts or what it is. I said, but you know, whenever I turn on the heater, I get this awful noise with the with the belts like that. And he go, he just kind of nodded. He goes, "Yeah, let me tell you what that is." And he went into like a fifteen minute dissertation <laughs> about how I could fix my car. 
Your car will never be more valuable than it was before you made the modifications, sadly to say. Hopefully you've kept all the original parts because you'll see some barn find that's been sitting in Connecticut for 60 years, all rusted out, totally untouched, bringing more than a heavily modified car. And this was pure Jay Leno. This is, this is the, the unvarnished Jay Leno. This is the part that you don't get to in public because, you know, it, it's, it's his passion. It's what he loves to talk about. And I, I don't know, it, it, may, have been, it may have not have been 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes, but it was enlightening. It was edifying. It was, it was me seeing Jay as he really is. And then he looks at his watch and he says, you know what? He says, if I get a chance to talk to you about it later, he says, I can tell you more. He says, but I got to go back in and do another show. Said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And afterwards, Jay comes in and he says, hey, guys, he says, listen, I'm going to have to go. That's my best Jay Leno imitation. And he says, <laughs> he says, but you know what? He says, I'd like to get a group picture with all of you if I could. And yeah, heck yes. You know, so we all jump in behind him and everything like that. And somebody somehow, I don't know where it came but from, but somebody produced a bag of Doritos. And so Jay is holding the bag of Doritos. Because remember, he was he was representing them. He had that was one of his sponsors. And he holds the bag of Doritos. We all get around and we get a nice picture. And he shakes everybody's hands and, and uh, wishes us all the best. Merry Christmas and all that. And he left. And uh, Bert, the manager, calls us together in the room. And he says, guys, he says, let me have your attention a minute. He's got a handful of envelopes in his hand. And he went around and he named everybody that was working. We each got an envelope. And that envelope was $200. And that was from Jay. And when we, when we were out in L.A. with the Blackhawks in, in 2010, we went to Jay's show as you may recall. And we had like a group picture with Jay. And before the picture was shot, I turned to him and said, Jay, I don't know if you remember me, John Whiteman. I was the bartender at Zany's. And Jay looks at me, he goes, yeah, I thought you looked familiar. He says, I know I, I met you someplace. He said, yeah, that was it. Before I go back in time, I want to turn to the present because you have thus far survived myriad changes in the Blackhawks organization, not the least of which have been in the broadcast booth, but here you are in your 17th season. Lucky? Very good at what you do, both? George, I'm going to say it's going to be a combination. I have had the good fortune through my life and through my career to meet a lot of great people. I don't have time on this podcast to list all of them, but there have been, uh, I would say, at least half a dozen, maybe even a dozen that have been influential for sure, um, but have helped to kind of guide me in the right way. And, you know, it, it turned out to be really worthwhile because it changed my way of thinking about how I was going to get there a little bit. It may, have, it may have altered it just enough to make a difference. So I'm going to put Troy Murray on that list, by the way. He's a guy I work with, and I just love him like a brother. Dickel with his first goal of the finals, and Kent on the playoffs ties the score. Man, Duncan Keith pinches down the wall, and he makes a beautiful play. But to start it all off, Patrick Kane just danced his way through the neutral zone, the Boston Bruins just trying to... You know, from working with Troy, I've been able to kind of size up situations better because we're the same kind of people when it comes to our passion for hockey. We both love the game and we both love talking about it. But our personalities are different enough that, you know, from being around him and kind of absorbing his, his knowledge, his aura uh, for talking about the game and for understanding the game and, and getting to know the people in the game. I mean, I, I've been very, very fortunate in that regard.
Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. You mentioned Troy, of course, I covered as a as a player uh, when he was here. Obviously, he's been in a very tough battle with cancer. I saw him recently. He seems to be in great spirits. To say he's a battler, John, would be an understatement. Oh, there's no question about it, George. When Troy gave me the news about his condition in August of 2021, I sat there in my car. My son was sitting next to me, and I was... I couldn't, I couldn't hold back the tears. I, my, my son, Sean says, dad, what's the matter? And I said, uh, I said, Troy's in a tough spot, but I remember thinking with Troy's condition that as tough of a battle that he was going to have to undergo, that kind of a battle wouldn't be suitable for the average human being. Uh, Troy is one of the toughest guys I've ever known. I mean, physically and mentally. And it, to me, it was that combination that made him an exceptional hockey player. think, well, what did Troy Murray ever do? Well, Troy Murray won a Frank Selke trophy for top defensive forward in the National Hockey League at a time when, boy, you had to be tough just to endure uh, one game of an 82-game season, not to mention an entire season. A lot of people don't know it. Troy scored 99 points one season. I think it was the 87 season. You might yeah. remember that. Oh, yeah. He had a terrific season. Yeah. And that was the year that he won the Frank Selke trophy. But a lot of people don't know it. Within the last three weeks of the season, he took a slash on the wrist from a guy named Lee Norwood. Well, this one hit the right spot and it messed up his hand. And his, his ability to handle the puck was impaired. And since he couldn't handle the puck that well, shooting was also affected. So he stopped. He ended at 99 points. Now you take 99 points from that era and you apply it to today's era of National Hockey League play, 99 points is going to make Troy a multi-million dollar athlete. And I don't know what he earned back then. I'm, I'm sure he earned a, a, you know, a handsome living because he was a tremendous hockey player. But that was back then, and you, know, you roll the clock ahead. If, if that kind of an athlete was playing today, he would be invaluable to a team. He would be, he'd be one of the top 15, 20 players in the National Hockey League. And every game that I ever saw that Troy played in, it was like he took pride in winning a faceoff, dumping the puck deep into the opposition zone, and then finishing the first check. And he would, so many nights at the stadium, he would get the crowd revved up with one of his 
patented body checks and he's not a small guy. So, you know, if you're, you're going to be on the receiving end of one of those hits with the momentum of him skating toward the check, you're going to feel that check for probably about a week. But I mentioned the mental aspect of it, you know, Troy, as an athlete, he had to be very tough mentally because, you know, as a professional athlete, there's a lot that they can't talk about that happens on the inside, happens in the dressing room. So when I thought about him dealing with this cancer, I thought to myself, you know, a lesser man isn't going to make it. But because of his toughness physically and his toughness, toughness mentally, I think that's played a major role in him getting to this point where he's able to travel with the team again. And he wants to do all 82 two games. And George, I can't tell you how happy that. Well, it makes a lot of us happy to see that he's doing that now. This podcast is going to air on November 15th, a little over a month into a Blackhawk season, which is not expected to be a good one. So much, John, has transpired in a year from the Kyle Beach incident to the dismissal of Stan Bowman to the hiring of Kyle Davidson as the GM and then Luke Richardson as head coach. And of course, the departures of Foley and Olchek. And on top of all of that, this is a franchise in a total rebuild. That is a lot to digest in a rather short period of time. It is. Um, but, you know, when you take this job, you take the good and the bad. And you find usually that the bad is not as bad as anybody thinks it could be. It's just, okay, this isn't the best of things, but this is the way things are. And we're going to make the best of what we have. And I think everybody is on board with that notion, including me. I, from day one, I've been on board with that notion. It's like, okay, this is something that the organization wants to undergo and I'm with them. Let's go. Let's, let's get it done. That's how, that's how most of the people around me, I think I would speak for almost everybody around me. I can't speak for everybody around me, but I would say that most of the people, if not all of the people around me are on board with that notion of this is what's been decided. So let's pick up the ball and let's go. Is it going to be a team that is going to win a Stanley Cup? I'm going to say probably not. What I can say on this team's behalf is what I've seen is a lunch pail kind of attitude. These guys come and work hard. And if they come with that attitude every single night, and if they pay attention to what Luke Richardson and the coaches are doing insofar as instruction is concerned, as this team goes along, it's going to find, you know, maybe a way of doing things or a style of play or, you know, a routine or something that, you know, some way of labeling what they do. I think that's going to happen in time. And I would say by Christmas, I would think that, you know, there'll be a team that people had better be careful when they play. From an objective point of view, I would have to say that I expect this team to be the hardest working team in the league, and they may surprise some people when it's all said and done. With that in mind, do you think the Blackhawks will trade Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves before the trading deadline? I really don't know that, George. And I have not been bold enough to go up to either Jonathan Taves or Patrick Kane and ask that question because... Number one, it's not my business. Uh, but number two, I, I feel like they have earned the right to kind of direct their own careers, so to speak. And if it ends up that before the year is out, they do seek different destinations, I'm going to be happy for both of those guys because they have been, first of all, they've been great people to me. They are pretty humble, family-oriented 
kinds of kids. I call them kids. And I think that what you get out of both of these guys is a passion for the game, um, a hunger to win, and uh, an ability to, let's say, influence their teammates in a positive way so that those influences can translate into a winning culture. Take me back to your days growing up in Kansas City, because that's really when you became a Blackhawks fan. I first became a Blackhawk fan. It was like the winter of, I think it was 1967. There was a major snowstorm, and I was a young kid at the time, and playing with my buddy Jerry, my next-door neighbor, who was my best friend, I was playing in his basement. Just I, We were just messing around. I can't even remember what we were doing, but I do remember Jerry saying, come on, let's go outside. You know, it, there was a bunch of snow on the ground. It's probably a foot and a half of snow on the ground. It was a major blizzard that had just come through. And uh, I said, yeah, okay, sure. And I walked behind him. He was, he went up his stairs and then he kind of went out. And I think he thought that I was right behind him. And I was for a few paces anyway, until I walked up beside his TV, which was on. And I look and on the TV, there was a hockey game going on between the Blackhawks and the Montreal Canadiens at Chicago Stadium. And I remember it was the stadium because I remember the scoreboard, the clock, the old clock mm -hmm. that kept the time. And none of the players had helmets on. And I'm watching this and I, I could not take my eyes off of this. And I probably stood there. I would guess I was standing there for at least a half an hour watching this game. And in that game, Bobby Hall, Stan Nikita, Glenn Hall, um, I think Kenny Warham, I think he was in that. I think yep. Elmer Moose Vasco, Pierre yep. Pilat. Streets to Marat, Hawk zone, Martin now at his blue line. Leading to Dennis Hall at the center line. Dennis Hall to the blue line, takes a check from Harris, and Harris has the puck off the near board. Now center ice play for Dennis Hall. Dennis Hall off the skate of Jimmy Pappen, deflects to Roy Edwards, and he clears it off the near board. Dennis Hall's slap shot is wide to the left. And on the Canadian side were Jean Bellabeau, Henri Richard, I think Yvonne Cornoyer was a young player back then. Yep. And there was another guy playing in that game. His name was Jimmy Roberts. Yep. Of the Canadians, who was less, less well-known than some of the others. In the front zone. Here's the lead pass to Roberts. Roberts going in on goal. He shoots a save by Maniago between his legs. Roberts crashes into the boards. He's all right. Right between his legs and a penalty coming up. A little twist of irony here. That was 1967, I believe. In 1994, that man, Jimmy Roberts, would become my boss in Worcester in the American Hockey League. When wow, I how about that? Broadcasting. Yeah, and I remember, I remember George sitting down with him when I first met him. I said I was sitting down with him, kind of doing a, a pseudo interview with him. And I said, you played for the Canadians, right? He says, I sure did. I said, how many Stanley Cups did you win? He says, well, he says, I only won five. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Canadians said, did win a bunch. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, his, 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 his head coach was Toe Blake. And then later on, it was Scotty Bowman. He won yep. two Stanley Cups with Toe Blake as head coach and three with Scotty Bowman. The most, me, the most poignant part of it is that Jimmy Roberts was the man that hired me. He was the greatest guy that I ever met in the game of hockey, bar none. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. We resume with John Weindemann on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Your journey through this sport included stops in other minor league cities and the NHL, though the one in Philadelphia didn't exactly work out the way you wanted it to. Tell me a story I don't know about that. I can tell you this. Um, I mentioned Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts. It's in the middle of the state of Massachusetts. It's the second largest city in New England, or was at the time. Uh, it's where I met my wife. I was there and I could have stayed there. But at the time in my life, I kept thinking, I've, I've got to get to the National Hockey League if I can. I've got to, gee whiz, I've, I've got to find a way, you know, because I kept thinking that if I, if I stayed in the minors for too long, I was going to be in the minors for the rest of my life. And I aspired to be a National Hockey League broadcaster. So when the job in Philadelphia opened in 1996, I looked into it. I sought out some people who I knew that were involved. So I, I got my demo together, you know, and I asked Jimmy Roberts to put in a call to Bobby Clark, who at that time was president of the organization. He ran the hockey ops side of the Flyers. He was a great general manager. And Jimmy put in a call to him and said, Bobby, he said, if you need to hire a radio guy, he says, this kid's good. He says, he can he can do the job for you. He's not going to be any problem to you. He says, he says, trust me, he's a good kid. That's what Jimmy told me, he said. And Bobby Clark, I think, played a big role in me going to Philadelphia. So, you know, the year began and I was working with a guy that I don't think that there was really a mesh. I mean, we both loved the game of hockey. We both loved it. But we were different as far as personalities are concerned. And that made for a difficult kind of existence for me. Well, that Flyers team, 96-97, went all the way to the Stanley Cup final and played against the Detroit Red Wings, and they were swept in four games. But in my immediate surroundings, the situation just had deteriorated to the point where uh, I knew at the end of the year that things weren't going to change, that you know I had to leave and I had to go and find other work and uh, I'd lost a little bit of confidence, you know, there in Philadelphia, too, even though you're working a major market with a passionate fan base, which was exhilarating. But, it, you know, it wasn't the Blackhawks. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, this is probably not a bad move at the end of the year to say, thank you, guys. It's been fun. And I wish you the best and move on. And that's what I did. You had some other stops along the way, Tampa, Columbus, the island. So how did you get to what I imagine is your dream job, the Blackhawks. 
didn't the Beatles have a song, The Long and Winding Road? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it fits. You know, I left Philadelphia and I went to Cincinnati for four years in the International Hockey League. And uh, after four years, the league folded. And now I know that I'm going to be out of a job again. This is 2001. So I, I sent some information out to various teams, various NHL teams, you know, trying to, you know, hoping for the best anyway. And my wife, Kelly, who at the time was my girlfriend, she was working in northern Indiana at Culver Academy as a counselor. And she says, well, why don't you just come up here and interview for a counselor's job? She says, they, they need people just like you. I said, yeah, I guess I might as well. I've got, you know, it looks like my career is over as a broadcaster. So, you know, hey, okay. But I went up to Culver and I spoke with them. Uh, a man named Captain Kehoe there was good enough to interview me. And when the interview process was done, it took about three hours. He says, I'll get back with you later in the week with the contract offer. The next morning, I took my roommate, who guy that I live with, I lived in his house. I took him out to breakfast. I said, come on, let's go celebrate. I was at the counter paying for my breakfast and my cell phone rings. And I look at it and it's a 516 area code. And I thought, oh my gosh, it was Chris Botta from the New York Islanders calling. Apparently they had reviewed my information and they wanted to talk to me. And Chris said, John, it's Chris Botta from the New York Islanders. We'd like to talk to you about our vacant radio broadcasting position. And I went up to New York and I interviewed with him for a day and flew back. And when I got back, my roommate looked at me and says, well, I said, I said, I think I'm going to New York. <laughs> I can't believe this. And uh, one thing led to another and I did get the job. Well, I plan to move, George, on September 11th, 2001. Mm. And that morning I got up, I got in my car to drive over to the Ryder truck rental place. And I turned on WLW radio in Cincinnati. Mike McConnell was the host and he's on the air and I'm listening to Mike. And he says, uh, this story just in, he says, apparently a plane has crashed into one of the twin towers in New York. Details are a little sketchy. He says, we'll get back to you when we have more details. Pat, we are just currently getting a look at the World Trade Center. We have something that has happened here at the World Trade Center. We noticed flame and an awful lot of smoke from one of the towers of the World Trade Center. We are just coming up on uh, this scene. This is easily three quarters of the way up. So we drive along a little further and I don't know, it was probably a half an hour. I get to the Ryder truck rental place and just before I walk in, I hear this report. Another plane has crashed into the other tower in New York and a plane has crashed into the Pentagon. All commercial flights are grounded. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? Like all Americans, I'm sure everybody thought, what in the heck is going on here? You know, and then the next thought I, I had was, we're being attacked. And I was going to move that day. And I'm thinking to myself, well, moving is like the least of my worries now. And I walk into the Ryder truck rental place and there was a big TV on the counter where this man was working and who had managed the place. And I walk in and he says, where are you moving today? And I pointed at the TV because he had the coverage of the 9-11 and the buildings collapsing on. And I pointed at the TV and I said, I'm moving there. He goes, you're not moving there today. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, I just, like most Americans, I just was in a fog as to what to do. So I caught myself for a minute and I thought, all right, I've got to call the guy that is my boss in New York. So I called up Chris 
And I said, Chris, it's John Weideman. I said, I was going to move to New York today. I said, but because of what happened, he says, yeah, I know. He says, we're in Lake Placid. So the Islanders had gotten out of Long Island and gotten up to Lake Placid for their training camp. And I didn't know that. And he says, you got some place you can sit tight for for a couple of days? I said, yeah, I can stay where I am indefinitely. He says, why don't you do that? He says, give me a call on Saturday. And uh, so Saturday came along and I called Chris back and I said, Chris, I said, do you think it's okay now? He says, yeah. He says, you can come on up. He says, but there's only one place open to get across to the island. And that was the George Washington Bridge. So, okay. So I left on a Saturday, drove all day Saturday. I think I got to Easton, Pennsylvania, where Larry Holmes is from. Uh, got a hotel, spent the night, got up early the next morning and drove up through New Jersey to get to the George Washington Bridge. And as I got close to the bridge, within a couple of miles, I encountered a parking lot. And the traffic, it took me three and a half hours to crawl along that part, along that uh, expressway up to the George Washington Bridge. And when I finally did get there, it was about seven at night, six, 6.30. And I get up near the bridge and all of a sudden, all of these emergency personnel, police, they start walking toward me. I'm going, oh boy, this could be bad. And they all pointed at the side of the road, just pull it over, pull it over. Because I'm driving this big rider truck with a car transport attached to the back, pulling my vehicle. And so I was uber cooperative with these guys. I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, and I pull over under the shoulder and the guy says, get out of the truck. They weren't polite at all. They said, get out of the truck. And so I got out of the truck. <clears throat> I left the truck open. They crawled through the truck with flashlights and with all these, you know, these detectors. And these guys were all carrying guns. One of them had a, a like a submachine gun, I think. And I, I said, guys, I said, I'll cooperate, whatever you need me to do. They said, open up the back of the truck. So I open up the back of the truck and these dogs come out. And this guy, these two guys that have dogs. And they let the dogs actually climb up in my truck where I had packed all my belongings. And I said, do you need me to unload some of this stuff, guys? Like, no, no, we're fine. Just stay right there. And they, the dogs went through it. And then I had to go and I had to open up my car, which was on a transport. And the dogs kind of looked through my car. Guys are looking through my car. I opened up the trunk of my car and then, you know, they're looking through there. They put a mirror under the truck. They put a mirror under my car and under the transport. And uh, the guy says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm moving over to Long Island today. And he says, why are you moving there? I said, well, I just took the job with the New York Islanders as their radio guy. And this guy says, oh, that's too bad. And I went, really? Why? Because <laughs> I'm a Ranger fan. <laughs> Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks cup 
clubs and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. How did you then wind up with the Blackhawks? After working on Long Island for five years, I think it was June of 2006, I get an email from a friend of mine that says, I can't believe this has happened to a guy who's been an institution with the Blackhawks for over 25 years. And I read the email, I said, I looked at it, I thought, what? They're not bringing Pat Foley back? What? You know, I thought Pat would be there for life. And, you know, and I remember reading that and thinking to myself, this, I don't know if I believe this, you know, and I, I, I called my friend. I said, where'd you get this information? He says, I got it online. He says, apparently it's all over the place. We were talking contract. There was, and, and at that time, the Hawks were breaking up the simulcast. So everybody's asking, you know, are you going to do radio or TV or what, what's going to happen? Uh, never got that far. They fired me and, and, uh, and so be it. So I thought, hmm, well, if he was let go, who did they name as the successor? And I thought, I'm going to give a call to a guy I knew there and find out if, you know, what was really going on, if this was indeed true. And I called and he says, yeah, it's true. And I said, well, have you appointed a, a new radio or TV guy? No, no, he's wide open. And he says, uh, you know, if you're, if you're interested, he says, get me your information as soon as you can. I thought, okay, you know, like that. So I sent my information out actually that afternoon. And then I found out that, you know, they wanted to divide up the duties, TV and radio, and hire a separate TV guy and a separate radio guy. And so I sent my information there. And uh, probably a week and a half later, I got a call from Jim Maria, who said that, you know, we have reviewed your information. What would it take to bring in Chicago? I was a loss. I just didn't know what to say. I, I, I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the team I love, and they want me to be their radio guy. This is like a dream. I can't believe this. And sure enough, it, would, it all became true. And then it started in 2006. And then my son, Sean, was born in December of 2006, and we've been there ever since. It wasn't long after that, John, yeah. you were lucky as I was to witness the Blackhawks' first Stanley Cup in 49 years. I was with WG at the time and in Philadelphia for that glorious moment, though I do remember it was not so glorious yeah. for me because of some technical <laughs> difficulties. Tell me a story I don't know about that evening for you. The man that was handling the engineering, his name was Tom Keegan. And I remember talking to him in the press room before game six, and I knew you were there to cover it. I remember talking to Tom and saying, okay, now if it should happen tonight, that you know, we're able to win this game. Are we all set to go on everything? There are no possible glitches in anything that's going to happen. Nothing like that. And he says, oh, yeah, it's all set up. You're all good to go. He says, if you guys win, he says, because he was a Flyers fan. He says, if you guys win, he says, I'm going to hate it, but that's all right. He says, you guys, everything is going to work out just fine. I said, okay, great. And I took him at his word. So sure enough, Patrick Kane scores at 547 of overtime and 
the Blackhawks win their first Stanley Cup in 49 years. Here's Kane now, juking his way to the right, lower left corner, shoots, he scores! Oh no, that's turned wide by Layton, loose puck in the crease, and now it's in the net, they score! It's they, in, they score! It's in! The Hawks win it's the in! Stanley Cup! The Hawks win the Stanley Cup, Layton is down on his knees in the goal crease, and that one looked like it slid past him into the net, they're going to go and take a look, they're going to take a look upstairs. And Troy and I had the good fortune of being able to cover it and talk about it. And so our good friend, our colleague, George Hoffman is down on the ice. He's got a couple of Blackhawk players lined up to talk to. Let's send it down to ice level and, and pick up George. And sure enough, you've got the remote mic and it doesn't work. Please do not remind me. <laughs> but you know, what the, then, you know what it was? The explanation was it was because we tested it before the game. and It was fine. Right. They said right. it was the RF. There was the radio frequency. There was so many, um, <laughs> you know, uh, to TV and radio stations in the building. And every time I tried to get a guess, and I could see you guys up there, and it didn't work. I felt like I was going to just swim out of my three-piece suit and like just get to the entrance and leave. I mean, it was a fabulous experience. To be outside the locker room, and when Kane scores 30 seconds later, I'm on the Blackhawks bench. Okay, I'm on the Blackhawks bench. I just want a Stanley Cup. I'm seeing the Stanley Cup go by me, and I'm thinking to myself, "Is this real?" And then yeah. things became unreal. Oh, and I remember you—you you had the common sense, I should say, or the ability to think quickly and pull out your cell phone, and then connect through the board at WGN. And I think we got some. We got some interviews that way, like, you know, like somebody that would call in for a call-in show, but hey, you know, it worked. We got it done, right? I mean, we, but just like the Marines, we adapted, we overcame, right? Yet you had to try something. So, okay, this is now Philadelphia. Not long after that, you were in another city for a fabulous uh, yeah. Stanley Cup championship where 17 seconds became famous in Boston. From Canes and Kane at 18:44 in the fifth, third, bank, third period. Delmerson, Hawk line, right wing, put it ahead to Bowen, racing over the broad line. Gave it up for Oleg. He fires from the right circle. Stick save made by Rass. Here's Oduya drive. They hold the score. And Bowen in front of the net. Oduya fired a shot and deflected it on Rass. He left the rebound in the paint of the crease, and there was Dave Bowen to drive it home. It was unbelievable, George. Unbelievable. Okay, what is going on here? They just scored the go-ahead the go goal with under a minute to go. So, you know, they, they get back to center ice, and now the Bruins are down three to two. So now Claude Julien, who was the head coach to the Bruins, Bruins get possession. I think Bergeron was on. He dumps the puck into the Hawk zone, and now Tuka Rask is headed to the Boston bench so they can get a sixth attacker on. And our guys win all the battles. Brent Seabrook was able to clear the puck ahead to Jonathan Taves, who skated at the center ice with an open Bruin net, and he tried to shoot it. He was tripped. He lost control of the puck, but it flows down into the Boston zone, and the time winds off the clock, and the Blackhawks win their second cup. And Troy, here's a quick funny story. Troy knew that he had to get down to the ice for the postgame, right? So he's in his suit, and I think right after the handshake line, Troy said, I'll see you later, because he had to run down to the ice and get a remote mic. And Judd Surratt was working with us at the time. And Judd was already on the ice. He was in position to grab interviews. And Judd is phenomenal at his job. He's, he's one of the best in the business. And so 
Troy had to get down there and join Judd, or at least get down to the ice and help to interview players. I'm standing up uh, at the, the microphone console by myself, watching this enormous crowd develop on the ice down below me. And little did I know, but I thought Troy had been able to successfully get to the elevator and get down to ice level from where we were. But anybody who knows the elevators in the National Hockey League knows that Boston's got one of the slowest elevators in the league. And you're the visiting radio guy and you got to get to the ice so that you can catch post-game interviews for a team that just beat the home team, the Boston Bruins. You're not going to get any favors, right? So what does Troy do? He calls an audible. He dashes through an exit and he goes down these stairs and he ends up going through a door at the bottom and he's outside the building. <laughs> he thought he was going down and he was eventually going to get down to ice level and go through a door that would lead him right to the Zamboni tunnel. Well, this one leads him outside the building and the door closes behind him and he goes, uh-oh. <laughs> oh my. So now he's looking for a door to get back in. And he walks a few feet down from where he was, and there's a door that leads to the kitchen, fortunately enough. And so he told me later, it was like that scene from Goodfellas where uh, Henry Hill is leading his girlfriend through the, the kitchen to get to the, the, the uh, table at the nightclub, you know. And I like going this way, I've been waiting in the line. <laughs> He said it looked just like that. He's walking through in his suit. He's sweating because it was hot in Boston. And he gets through. They couldn't have been nicer. They let him go through the kitchen and get right out to where the Zamboni was. And, and Troy, you know, grabbed his remote mic, gets out on the ice, and, you know, he gets all of his interviews in. And I had no idea that, that from the time that he left me, he had to do what he did in order to get there. But by gosh, he got it done. This sounds like something that I should have been doing, of course, after Philadelphia. I would have been the perfect guy in Boston. So now let's yeah. jump ahead to 2015. And now the Blackhawks are about to win their first Stanley Cup at home since 1938, beating Tampa in what turned out to be a somewhat bizarre evening. It was. It was. My family, we came from the western suburbs down to the United Center, and we left two hours early. And as we're coming back down, I'm hearing all of these reports of lightning and thunder. I think there was even a tornado warning. And, you know, I'm on my way down to the United Center from the western suburbs, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'm looking on out of both sides of the car going, is there a funnel cloud out there anywhere, you know, like that. And, you know, we get down to the United Center, and all the inclement weather had kind of moved out of the area. And we get in, it's the Blackhawks and the Tampa Bay Lightning game six. And the guys had fought back, and they had put themselves in a position to, to do it. And I know, I know that the ghosts of the past had to be lurking somewhere inside the United Center because you look around and you talk to the fans and they're going, God, I hope they don't blow it like they did in 1971 and 73, you know, like that. And I thought, you're immediately reminding me, of course, of Jacques Lemaire's goal from <laughs> yes. 85 feet to beat Tony Esposito. Another nightmare. Thanks a lot. Jacques Lemaire, one of the apparently underrated fellas of the Montreal team, scores! A lightning-like goal. Watch this on the replay by Lemaire. He is just across center ice. And a 75-foot goal takes off over the right shoulder of Tony Esposito. Yeah. And then 73, they had a chance to win it in 73 against the same Canadian team, and they lost. 
So I thought, no, this is a different team, different era. This team's actually won a couple of Stanley Cups. They know how to win. And that was kind of the belief I was holding on to it. And sure enough, the, the boys did their part. They got it done. It was a 2 nothing shutout. And I remember saying for the third time in six seasons. Now remember it was that tremendous thunderstorm that forced the Stanley Cup itself to be delivered about a half an hour late because, well, they were stuck in traffic. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny about Stanley Cups being presented on Chicago ice. The only other time, George, that I can remember that the Stanley Cup was presented, you know, without fail or without delay was 1992 when the Penguins beat the Blackhawks in four straight. But previous to that, there was a time, I think it was back in the 30s, maybe maybe in the 40s, where the cup was actually stolen by somebody at Chicago Stadium. And it was supposed to be presented to, I believe, the Montreal Canadiens. And it was stolen, and they had to, they had to track it down. I can't remember the, the exact end of that story, but it, 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 there was somebody that had stolen it, had taken it, because they didn't want the Canadians to be presented with it that you had a chance to work with Joel Quenville, who was really the right coach at the right time. What was that like for you? Oh, boy. He was more than a head coach to me. And I'll say this, he's the best head coach I've ever known. So what's next, John? How do you see yourself one year down the road, let alone, say, 10 years down the road? Difficult to say, George, because I love what I do so much that I want to do this indefinitely. I mean, I told my wife, in a conversation not long ago, I said, I want to work at least another 10 more years, you know, and, and you know, maybe who knows after that? I mean, uh, if I could make it 15, let's go 15. I love what I do. I love doing the radio for the Blackhawks. I love talking to Blackhawk fans because I'm one of them. I ask this final question to all my guests, John, if not for broadcasting, what would you have been? Good question. Um, possibly as a writer, um, I'm not really sure. The, something in the people business because I enjoy interacting with people. I've been told that, you know, I should maybe think about getting into politics. And I thought, no, no way. No way. Not this kid. No way. Well, we have interacted quite well since you arrived. Yeah. You have made hockey so enjoyable to listen to. And here's hoping you're doing it here for many more years to come. Thank you, John Weideman, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you, George. My thanks to WGN Radio, Courier TV, Zanies, Jay Leno's Garage on CNBC, WGN TV, WCBS Radio, Pat Foley from Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, and Warner Brothers production of Goodfellows for those fabulous highlights. My thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>